The scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Well, has anything ever been more convincing than the before and after shot? You see this in advertising all the time, right? You need your hair back, guys. So look at this man who's no longer bald. You need to lose weight. You need a new kitchen. To be honest, that's one of the only reasons I watch HGTV. So seeing that 1970s living room with the shag carpet converted to a modern-day entertainment paradise is quite amazing. When we see the before and then the after, we're convinced we need the product. Well, this morning we continue on in our study of the New Testament letter of 1 Timothy, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a pastor named Timothy. Timothy's a part of a church in the city of Ephesus in the first century AD. And we saw last week that false teaching had sprung up in this church. Speculations about the Old Testament that led to division there. And so Paul's writing to Timothy, charging him to stop this teaching and hold fast to the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as the only basis for sound doctrine. There in verse 11, Paul says he's been entrusted with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. It's this gospel that must guide the church at Ephesus. And in the passage Daniel has just read for us, we see Paul think back to what this same gospel has accomplished in his own heart. He gives us a before and after shot of his life. He shows us a picture of Saul, the persecutor, and Paul, the apostle. And the turning point, the renovation, if you will, is the mercy of God coming to the greatest of sinners. Paul shows us exactly what we thought about last week, that gospel doctrine will always lead to gospel living, that the truth of the cross will always show itself by transforming the people of the cross. So with our time together this morning, let's look briefly at two things. The power of the cross, or the power of the gospel, and the fight for the gospel. First, the power of the gospel. Look there in verse 12 with me. Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. So Paul has already introduced himself as an apostle in verse 1. That means he's been commissioned by Christ himself to be a teacher and a leader of the early Christian church. God has chosen him for that role. God has appointed him to be an apostle. 
And that phrase, judged me faithful, doesn't mean God kind of looked at Paul in his rebellion and saw something deserving in him. No, instead it shows how God sovereignly selected an unworthy man for a trustworthy task. But there's more here than just a job hire for Paul. No, Paul's call to ministry transforms his life, transforms his life because his call to ministry is a call to Christ, to repentance and faith in Jesus. He says there in verse 13 that God appointed him, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Paul's reminiscing here, thinking back to the time when he was known as Saul, the zealous persecutor of the Christian church. Jim read some for us earlier, but you can read more later in the book of Acts about this Paul, but just take it as a quick summary. So in Acts verse 1, we see Paul as a willing participant in the first murder of a Christian. In Acts 8 verse 3, we see him ravaging the church, entering homes, and dragging off Christian men and women for prison. In Acts verse 9, we see verse 1, Acts 9 verse 1, we see him breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of Christ. This is the man Paul was, a blasphemer, speaking dishonor to the name of Christ, a persecutor, wreaking havoc in the church of Christ, an insolent opponent, that is, arrogantly, violently opposing the gospel. This is the man Paul was. And and in that light, his statement in verse 12 becomes all the more incredible. God judged me faithful. The enemy number one of the church. A terrorizer of Christian families. Judged faithful now writing to Timothy and commanding him to uphold and protect the very message he once tried to annihilate. What had changed? We read it earlier, but in Acts chapter 9, we see that on the way to Damascus to persecute even more Christians, Paul is confronted by Jesus himself. Jesus stops Paul in his tracks and changes his life. He saves him and he calls him his chosen instrument for the salvation of many. Paul met Jesus. That's what happened. He hit head on the holy, wrathful, and yet amazingly merciful Son of God. Midway through verse 13, he says, I received this mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. He's saying he was an unbeliever acting in ignorance. And On first read, you might think he's offering an excuse for his rebellion. That's nothing he's trying to do. He's not in any way lessening the reality of his sin. You'll see that later. No, this means he had zealously tried to do what he thought was right in his sin as an unbeliever in Christ. As a Jew, he had zealously tried to defend Judaism against this upstart Christianity and this so-called Messiah, and that damned him until the mercy of God found him. In a way, this is contrasting himself with the false teachers in Ephesus who are teaching false doctrine while claiming to be Christians. 
Their rebellion is not ignorant, but willful and deceitful, both in need of grace. In verse 14, Paul rejoices that the grace of the Lord had overflowed for him. Reminds us of what he wrote in Romans 5, verse 20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Church, such is the power of the gospel. Our sin and rebellion finds no match in the face of God's sovereign grace. He bestows grace on whomever he wills in whatever way he desires. He uses the imagery of a river overflowing its banks, an image we've seen on TV recently, right? In Maryland. I even saw a video of Great Falls where you can barely see the rocks anymore. Kind of scary. But that's the imagery Paul's drawing on here. God's grace is as powerful as a river overflowing its banks. But as John Stott writes, this river of grace brings with it not devastation, but blessing. And after being plunged into that river, Paul is never the same. He who was once a most hardened sinner is now the most courageous preacher. So did you see the before and after shot? You see the transforming power of the gospel. In many of his letters, Paul just starts talking and talking and talking because he's still blown away by how the grace of God has changed his life. And he's not done talking about it here either. Look in verse 15. He says the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That's kind of a formulaic saying that Paul will use twice more in this letter and four times, five times in all in these pastoral epistles of First and Second Timothy and Titus. He's Letters written to pastors. Some think Paul in this phrase is appealing to some known tradition, some known saying, some known doctrine. Others that he's merely kind of emphasizing this statement as true. But regardless, Paul is showing that what he's about to say now is completely worthy of our trust and belief. So what is it? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Perhaps you're here this morning, you don't understand yourself to be a Christian. Again, we're so honored to have you with us. We hope you feel warmly welcomed. But just so you know, this is a perfect summary of what we believe. This is the gospel, the word which means good news. The good news that Christ Jesus, king over all, came into the world. But if you think about it, that truth that the king has come into the world isn't good news in and of itself. Left at that, it's dreadful. Because our king, this king, is perfect. And if he comes to an imperfect world, he will bring judgment. Why else would he come? Christ Jesus came. Not necessarily good news. Christ Jesus came into the world. That makes things even worse. He came into the world, this place full of rebellion against him, full of those who hated him. He came to you and to me, those who want to set up our own kingdoms and not submit to his. So why did he come into the world? To squash his enemies? He'd be right in doing so. To condemn us to punishment, he would be faithful to do that. How is this good news? You need to read to the end. 
Church, hear this truth. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, rebels, like Paul, like you, like me. Church, this news never gets old, never gets outdated. I'm a hockey fan, and so I'm relishing the news right now that my team is on top of the hockey world. But in a year, that's going to be old news. They might be a cellar dweller next year. Who knows? But this news never goes out of date, never loses its relevance, is always trustworthy. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came when we despised him. He lived a perfect life like we should have lived. He died the death we should have died, death under the judgment of God for our sin. And then he he rose again so that if you will repent of your sin and trust in him, you're going to be saved. Your sin will no longer be placed to your account, but to his, and his perfection and righteousness will be credited to you. Turn to him. But Paul continues, church. He's still not done with this trustworthy sentence. But he has a little touch at the end. Do you see that? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. That word foremost means first or chief. Paul is saying that he is the worst sinner And we use that phrase a lot in our lives. I went to a restaurant, and I got a a medium well burger, and I ordered a medium. Oh, that's the worst, right? Paul is not using this term flippantly. You can see why he'd say he's the worst, wouldn't you? I mean, think back to his testimony. Destroying the lives of innocent people, violently harassing the church, Paul is definitely not being self-deprecating here to manipulate us for pity. No, he's saying what he believes is true, that he's the worst of sinners. Elsewhere, in another letter, he calls himself the least of the apostles. And yet, and yet Christ Jesus came into the world to save him. So nothing is clearer to Paul here than that His salvation from sin and God's judgment is not because of anything worthy in him, but only because of the grace of God. So church, what about us? I mean, isn't this statement a bit outdated now? We're in 2018. We've seen Hitler and Stalin and Bin Laden far worse sinners. Maybe we should come back here into 1 Timothy and translate this a bit differently. Update the Bible here. Certainly Paul's no longer under the gun as the chief of sinners, is he? Paul here sees a remarkable compassion that has reached even to him. And church family, in the same way, I believe we all, like Paul, can confess this statement as true of ourselves as well. See, each of us knows our hearts better than anyone else. 
I know the thoughts that have gone through my head even this morning, and I shudder if you would see them. I know the words I've said. I know the motivations I've had. I know the sin I've coddled, and I know it better than any of you. And I still don't know the half of what God knows about my sin. Just really scary. Sure, I'm not as bad as I could be, but the sin that is in my heart is a sin that runs deep and wide, and I can't see the end of it. And one of the ironic things about being Christian is that the more holy you get and the more sanctified you get and the more mature you get in Christ, the more sin you see. So yes, yes, as far as I'm concerned, I agree. I'm the chief sinner not deserving of mercy. Brother and sister, is that how you view your sin? Are you tempted to constantly compare your sin to others in order to make it not look as bad? Do you spend time and energy excusing your sin away or anxiously trying to cover it up? Brother, sister, face the truth. John Stott says Paul is so vividly aware of his own sins that he cannot conceive that anybody could be worse. Christian, are you vividly aware of your sin? This verse is not calling you to fake humility. We have enough of that. This verse is calling you to gospel honesty, which is freeing. It's calling you to see that your sin is serious, that it killed the Son of God, and yet the sight of that sin being heaped on your Savior can and will and must set you free to confess it, knowing you no longer bear it, and to do the hard work of getting it out in the light and killing it. Church, we're great sinners. And yet... And yet Christ Jesus has come into the world to save people like us. We must understand the depth of our sin if we're ever going to understand the depth of God's grace. And just an aside here to teens and kids. If, like me, you've grown up with Christian parents and going to church, I assume you've heard this billions of times. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I assume you've colored pictures about it and sung Sunday school songs about it, and that's all wonderful. I'm glad that you can confess that first part of Paul's sentence about Jesus, that he came into the world to save sinners. But can I ask you, have you confessed the second part? Can you say Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners like me? Sure, he saves sinners, but can you say he saved you? Do you believe in him? Do you say that verse and memorize gospel truths to get that Awana badge or that extra allowance? Or do you say it because you understand that's true of you? Is this statement that's trustworthy and deserving full acceptance, is it true for you? If you don't know the answer to that, find out today. Talk to your parents. Talk to me. You won't see your need for Jesus until you see how needy you are 
and how much you require his mercy. So cry out to him. Ask him to help you. Well, Paul goes on and gives another reason for receiving mercy in verse 16. So as this first and foremost of sinners, he states that his conversion is now an example and a pattern of what the gospel does to sinners who turn to Christ. It shows how God is patient to wait and reach out and save those who have rebelled against him. Paul says he's a display of this. So in a way, he's a display case in the store of God's patience. Patience even to the wretchedest of wretches. It reminds me of another great sinner, the slave trader John Newton, who made his living dealing human lives for forced labor. And yet, when he saw the river of God's grace overflowing its banks for him, wrote what we sang just before the sermon, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a pretty good person like me. No, a wretch, the chief of sinners. Family, do you see the power of the gospel? If you've been praying for someone to come to Christ, someone you love, someone you work with, don't give up. God saved Paul, the ISIS criminal of the early church. God saved you, the chief of sinners. God can save anyone. So no wonder Paul launches into full-out praise there in verse 17. We sang some of these words at the beginning of our service. This God, the immortal, invisible one, sent his son to become mortal, invisible, to die for sinners. To him be honor and glory forever. That's the power of the gospel. It's the power of the gospel. Let's finish briefly then in verses 18 through 20 and see the fight for this gospel. The fight for this gospel. Look there in verse 18. Paul picks up where he left off back in verse 5. He's writing this letter to charge Timothy to guard sound doctrine, to guard the beautiful gospel against those who would seek to distract the church and go after clever myths and curiosities. And now he finishes up that thought. He says, this charge, remember the charge I began this letter with, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. Uh, we're not exactly sure what prophecies Paul is referring to, but it seems like it must include what we'll see later in chapter 4, uh, how Timothy had the elders of the church lay their hands on him. Paul is reminding Timothy not only of the power of the gospel that has saved him, but the power of the gospel that has called him to gospel ministry, especially to the defense of sound doctrine, to what he calls waging the good warfare. And then Paul does what he didn't do earlier. If you remember from last week, he kept calling these false teachers in the church certain persons, certain people, kind of like you know who you are. But now he doesn't hold any punches. He says, they're Hymenaeus and Alexander. At least some of them are. Apparently these two men were part of the Ephesian church and were promoting speculations that detracted from sound doctrine. 
They had forfeited good conscience and shipwrecked their faith. We're not exactly sure who they are. So Alexander is mentioned in other of Paul's writings, but Alexander was a super popular name. So this is probably not the same as others. Hymenaeus is a little bit more likely that we see him again in 2 Timothy as one who eventually denied the truth of the resurrection. And, and so here with these two guys, Paul bypasses any nice tactful factor and just calls them out. Timothy, church, you know these two guys reject their influence. But that's not it. Notice how Paul is exactly going to handle them in verse 20. He's going to hand these men over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. What does that mean? Well, this isn't the only time Paul talks that way. So uh, flip back to 1 Corinthians if you have your Bible open. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is talking to another church with other pastors. And there one of the the men in the church is engaged in gross sexual immorality such that even the world that is around that church is disgusted by it. And yet inside the church, he's receiving no rebuke for it, no challenge. So Paul there tells the church, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's the same kind of language Paul is using here. And in both of these passages, he is teaching the church what to do with so-called Christians in their midst who are part of their church families and yet will not repent of sin. They are to be handed over to Satan that means they will no longer be considered part of the church, the, the family that belongs to God. Instead, they will be seen again as belonging to the world, the habitat, the realm, the domain of Satan. Here at Loudon Valley, we call this church discipline. Our church discipline is a broad subject. Uh, generally, we think about it in two ways. There's there's formative church discipline, which is what we're doing right now, which is what we do in the men's breakfast and when we have each other over for dinner and when we pray for each other through the membership directory. We are forming one another, disciplining one another into the image of Christ. But what Paul's talking about here is what we call corrective church discipline. Church discipline for those who willfully and habitually sin with no intention of turning from it, no intention of repenting. Paul says, for those so-called brothers and sisters, they're to be put outside the church, excommunicated, so as to show that their actions are not in step with the gospel. The, the false teachers here in Ephesus were forsaking sound teaching, distorting the gospel, and their actions were therefore making the gospel look like something it was not. And so as a witness to the church, as a witness to the world, Paul says, put them out. And that's the same reason we practice this biblical doctrine of church discipline today in this church. When a professing believer who has joined himself to our congregation, who has said that he will walk in step with the gospel and he will call us to walk in step with the gospel, when a professing believer like that habitually and willfully refuses to live for Christ, 
eventually, after the process you see in Matthew 18 of going to him and going with a brother and going before the church, eventually we must say we're no longer sure that person is a Christian. We can no longer say honestly whether he belongs to Christ, to the church, or to Satan and the world. When we live in habitual, unrepentant sin, we lie about the gospel of Jesus. We lie about who Jesus is. We lie about what the work he does in the church looks like. And we lie not only to one another, but to the world. And so to make sure that lie has a limited lifespan and a limited reach, we put that person out of the church. That doesn't mean they're not welcome to attend with us to gather with us. We actually hope the very place they're going to be is with us so we can talk to them more and call them back. We hope they come, but it does mean they're not in communion with us. They do not take the Lord's Supper with us. They're no longer members with us. We discipline them, not because we can control who's a Christian and who's not a Christian. That's not our job. That's God's job. But we do it because Christ has given us the responsibility to steward the purity of the gospel and the unity of the church. And unrepentant sin destroys both those things. The church fighting for the powerful gospel is not a small task. We must take it very seriously. It's a matter of life and death. But notice one more thing as we wrap up. If you're hearing about this idea of church discipline for the first time and you don't think it's unloving, I'm surprised by that. Because it does sound unloving. It sounds harsh. But look at Paul's intention for church discipline. Excommunication from the church commanded by Paul does not necessarily end in judgment but it's aimed at restoration. And really, what else would you expect from the gospel, right? Paul says there in verse 20 of our text that the goal of the discipline of Hymenaeus and Alexander is that they might learn not to blaspheme. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says the goal of church discipline was that this man living in gross sexual immorality, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And so, the goal for our church discipline, the goal for him and Annas and Alexander here in 1 Timothy is that their sin might be repented of and Jesus might again be the greatest treasure in their lives, that their joy would be complete, that they would stop going to sinking sand and stand again on Christ. So do you see how discipline is the most loving thing we can do for a so-called brother or sister in unrepentant sin? If the gospel is what saves us, then when one of us goes astray from that glorious gospel, the most loving thing to do is call that person back. Show them the clarity of where they are and the danger in which they walk. Put them out of the church and then continually, constantly in prayer as a congregation, not just the job of the pastors, but the job of all of us united in covenant in this church. Call them back to repentance. Call them back to community. Call them back to life. Call them back to the body of Christ. There are those who shipwreck their faith. I fear for myself and all of us and the temptations of sin. That's part of the 
purpose of being together in a church, isn't it? When you join this church, you're saying, in essence, if I stray from the gospel, call me back whatever it takes. There are those who shipwreck their faith. But even they are not beyond the power of the gospel. The aim of church discipline, the aim of fighting for the gospel, is restoration and forgiveness and life. The church family, let us be vigilant against the pool of sin. Let us watch out for one another and call each other to repentance daily. The gospel is way too beautiful to muddy up and compromise. It's way too beautiful to sort of shift around and change some doctrines just so everybody's happy. It's way too powerful to dilute and destroy. So let's live to display it to one another in holiness and purity and unity. And look forward to the day when we will see that Savior, see that one who came into the world to save sinners like you and me. Let's pray to that end. Lord, we thank you. We confess that you, Christ Jesus, came into the world to save sinners of whom we are the foremost. We ask for your mercy. We ask for your power to be at work in us. And Lord, corporately as a church family, we ask for those in our membership who may be ensnared in sin even now and will not repent. We ask for your grace to overflow like a river in their lives. You'd make us a church that's willing to go after them, to pursue them, to nag them, and call them back to true joy. Lord, make us pure, Change us by the power of the gospel towards greater and greater glory as we anticipate your coming. In Jesus' name, amen.